We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome in to the RotoWire NFL podcast brought to you by Dynasty Owner. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. Mario, what's going on, man? Hey, not much. How are you doing, John? I'm good. Uh, the sun is shining. The The weather is getting kind of nice out here. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. Oh, dude. <laughs> Sorry. I have bad news already. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I think uh, something like, I don't know, 8 a.m. this morning, something like that, I noticed there are these horrifying... Like, I don't know if they're big mosquitoes or like little dragonflies or something like that, but they're swarming like all the windows of my apartment. And I'm God. wondering if this is going to be some big thing now in Madison. You know, I don't even know what these are. I don't recognize these things <laughs> at this stage. Like, sure. Like it, last week that it was the murder hornets. Uh, and then like they, they got sort of debunked for being wusses of the bee kingdom but it, w- it wouldn't shock me if, like, the giant mosquitoes are, are next. I mean, why not? Yeah, or, like, maybe they're locusts. I don't know what a locust looks like, so maybe that's what these are. Um, but, yeah, this is – it's already disgusting. There's, there's like, 50 of the things on my windows, and I, I 
I assume this is going to be some sort of yeah complicating life turn for us in, in Madison <laughs> for some it, reason. It's not one of the we're not on the seventeen year cicada clock, are we? I don't think they're cicadas. Okay. I've, I've had cicadas also give me some problems in the past. Uh, <laughs> one time, one was in my room, and it, I thought it was a rattlesnake in my room because that's <laughs> just what they sound like sometimes. Um, these I don't recognize, and I've I've been at you know stupid Wisconsin cottages and stuff way up north where there's lots of bugs. It's 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 really cool. I think that we have apparently new, uh, disgusting species of bugs just suddenly showing up in huge numbers. Yeah, things you love to see, um, and you know, especially when you know you've been cooped up and you oh you get to maybe go outside now. Now actually, uh, cancel that. You're gonna well, have some, well. you're gonna have a few more friends than you thought. Oh gosh. And then, um, what else did I want to talk to you before we get into, um, did you see the waffle house post from yesterday? I don't think so. What's that? Uh, basically, um, uh, we won't get into the full thing then as a result, but essentially that this woman wrote on like a, um, like Reddit r slash relationships board that, uh, her, her and her uh, longtime boyfriend, uh, they love going to Waffle House, or he he specifically loves going to Waffle House, and he's gotten into this uh, vendetta uh, with the chef there that uh, always overcooks his eggs, and uh, he called him out on it at one point, and the chef kind of escalated the situation by giving him like even more overcooked eggs, and event you know he wanted like over easy. And then eventually it, it like escalates into uh, him just giving him like a plate of hard boiled eggs, and now they like they fight every time he see they see each other, and the guy won't won't stop going to that Waffle House. Or I guess this was pre quarantine, um, but yeah, there, there's basically like a Peter Griffin uh, versus the giant chicken from Family Guy type of dynamic that this guy has with his local um, Waffle House chef, and it's pretty funny. Huh. I, I think I saw that in circulation, but I didn't look into it. Uh, just didn't catch my 2020, you know, era internet level of urgency. But uh, I guess that sounds interesting. Are those posts supposed to be real or are they supposed to be some sort of like performance art irony thing? Um, uh, I think they're supposed to be real. I mean, I always like to at least initially believe that they're real just for the for the com- comedic factor while knowing you know probably deep down that there's some serious embellishment like the idea of the these two guys getting into fights on like six or seven occasions over eggs at a waffle house seems a little bit unlikely but it's really funny if it's true yeah um yeah i don't know i, I mean I remember seeing other posts from the Reddit. Uh, maybe it's a different one of the things, but yeah, there's always these stories where I'm like, I just can't believe you guys are real people, and I can't believe you're telling the internet about this. But um, you know, uh, I guess sometimes you gotta fight the guy who's cooking your eggs at Waffle House and uh, post about it. Yeah, I mean, if it, if you're asking, for especially it. if it's tearing your relationship apart, post about it. Yes, that that's step one. Uh, that's that begins the healing process um but our topic of discussion uh, hard left turn uh topic of discussion for today's show we've been talking about rookies for what feels like forever so we're going to uh shelf that for at least this week and we're going to talk about um year two receivers so the guys that are going into their second year 2019 draftees at the receiver position you know i think 
that a lot of the times it's been said that we, we see a year two bump uh, when it comes to receivers, and we want to get in early on and find you know this upcoming season's uh, Cortland Suttons and, and DJ Moore's and so on. So um, with without further ado, I mean we obviously had a super talented uh, rookie class that, this past year. I mean AJ Brown had a, had an amazing year. Terry McLaurin with all the you know rough. Uh, circumstances around him on that team still being able to really really produce and he wasn't even as high of a draft pick as some of these guys uh hollywood brown started to show out late in the season dk metcalf of course it looks like a future just absolute stud debo uh darius slayton um let's let's break that break down those guys because i think those are all kind of established guys that are all uh legit top hundred in drafts type of in redraft type of guys and then we'll, yeah. we'll get into um you know, some of the guys that, that haven't uh, necessarily popped yet. But uh, let's start out uh, with A.J. Brown. Right. So he was someone that I know you liked him a lot. I was a little slow to, to realize how good he was at Mississippi because he started out just playing in the slot. And in some of the tape, it was just so easy for him. It was it was almost like, uh, you know, Adam Shaheen versus uh, the, the Division three guys where he's just like 80 pounds heavier than the heaviest player on the other team and just no one can tackle him. It kind of looked like that with A.J. Brown, but it, it was the wrong way that I was seeing it. It was it was just like, yeah, it really is that easy for him and, and it's just going to continue looking that easy for him. So uh, he he from a talent standpoint, skill standpoint, definitely something like a top uh, eight receiver, top 10 receiver, I think in the league. Uh, but of course the Tennessee offense doesn't look like it means to, to harness that the way some other offenses would. So that's the limiting factor. And as great as I think he is, I, I think it's a little much to expect him to complete, uh, to keep uh, averaging whatever it was, 12 and a half yards a target um, into his second year. So ideally that the target rate would pick up a little bit or the Titans would throw a little bit more, um, as risky as, as low as his floor might be for for kind of uh, you know the price that he costs, it is worth I think uh, considering what would happen to this offense if God forbid Derrick Henry should you know miss any time at all. Even even if Derrick Henry misses like twenty snaps in a game, that could be a scenario where AJ Brown goes from you know wide receiver uh, twenty to like wide receiver five or something like that. Uh, so so there are ways he could still have that huge breakout scenario where he's getting both the volume and the you know shrieking efficiency that he had from last year uh but yeah it's, it's a little it's a little disappointing or maybe even creepy uh, how much it seems like the titans are, are willing to kind of just keep him as an ace in the hole rather than like a feature uh, uh engine in their offense yeah i mean it's, it is confounding i mean okay so you look you look back at the game logs his first game, he catches three out of four targets for 100 yards. And you're like, okay, well, like that, that's obviously about as good of a start as we possibly could have hoped for. He's definitely going to see more targets. Um, sees five targets the, the next couple of weeks. Doesn't go over five targets until uh, week seven, I believe. And, and that also included a game where he caught all three of his targets for 94 yards and two touchdowns against the Falcons. So it's like the, he is just crushing it every time you throw it in his direction. Why aren't you throwing it to him more? Um, um, you know, only had one game with, with double-digit targets. So, 
yes, like the he had the maxed out sort of outcome for having only 84 targets. I mean, to average, like you said, 12 and a half yards per target, only dropping two of those passes. I'm not to say that he's going to like drop a bunch of passes now all of a sudden, but right. you know, the, the nine yards after after the catch is, is tough to sustain. Yeah. Um, the the average depth of target uh, being being as high as it was. So the, there are all those factors, but you also just have to think that Tennessee, if they're if they're really breaking down the strengths of their team, obviously it starts with Derrick Henry, but you just got to feed AJ Brown the ball. Like you got to get him the the uh, targets like at least seven, eight times uh, per game, and that that can help smooth over some regression that comes with um, you know that that yards after the catch, that that sort of thing. So um, if he pushes for 100 110 targets something like that um i think that he can definitely still get another thousand yard season um and you know probably push for double digit touchdowns on top of it yeah uh he would probably average something more like five yards after the catch per catch in any given year so uh he would i think we consider his baseline more like 800 yards and eight touchdowns on last year's target count rather than the 1050 yards and eight touchdowns on 84 targets but uh if you're tennessee they should just try to get his air yardage per snap basically up to the you know 99th percentile because uh you look at his player profile in rotowire which is really honestly like all i really use to research uh players these days um he's at 1.6 air yards a snap which is 82nd percentile uh they need they need to get that like maximum like they need to be among the league uh, leaders, or, sorry, they need him utilized at, at among the highest levels in the league because it's just, uh, you know, great as Derrick Henry is, he sh- he should be more like their second half, uh, you know, foundation. Like it's they should try to get quick leads with AJ Brown, and yeah, then he use should be Henry. that ace in the hole more so than Brown. Yeah, he should just he should be like a chokehold that they use to to protect a lead once they get it quickly by throwing to AJ Brown. So hopefully they start to see it that way. Hopefully they start throwing to Johnu Smith more often too, uh, unrelatedly. Um, but yeah, there's there is a way for Tennessee to get AJ Brown toward you know the very top of the wide receiver production, even even if he's he's still lagging a little bit in the target volume from the other guys. Yeah. So. Um Overall, I guess as bottom line here, in discussing this, uh, since he's already broken out, um, you, what is like your year two expectation, and like what what do you make of his like draft day cost right now, going just inside the top forty? It looks like since the start of May. Yeah, it looks like in best ball tens, he's going at the turn of the uh, third and the fourth round, which is is reasonable. He's he's probably got a little more upside than some of the guys in that range. Like I would I would consider AJ Brown a higher upside option than Cortland Sutton at this point, for instance. Um, but there's definitely guys with higher floors too, like Cooper Cup going right before Allen Robinson going right after. I would, given that we're talking the third round, I would probably prefer Allen Robinson uh, just because, especially in PPR, I'm I'm not really worried about him hurting my team at all, and and I'm I'm trying to get safe picks in the in the in the the first four or so rounds rather than chasing upside but if you're in a tournament setup especially and if if you for whatever reason just want that upside uh, i I don't think you can really beat just just chasing the best talent and and aj brown is probably that in that range no no shade to alan robinson who's insanely good Uh, it's just like aj brown looks like he might be the best receiver pretty soon yeah he is yeah he's on an unbelievable trajectory so uh nothing to nothing to um you know be be someone to to fade him because maybe last year was like ultimate outcome for certain little 
you know, baked in levels of his production. I think that there, there are signs that he can still uh, be even more productive in the future. Um, let's move on to Terry McLaurin real quick. Uh, to, yeah. It's on Scary Terry. So I thought he looked good as a prospect, but I was totally caught off guard by how good he is. And I know it was just one year. I know it was only 780 snaps, but I think it's pretty convincing how, how good he was last year because it's not as if the the team's baseline passing production could have carried him or, or otherwise, you know, padded his production level. It's like most things are, are almost everything was working against him every mm-hmm. time he went out in the field. And yet, even with pretty high difficulty level targets, even with a 13.8 yard average depth of target, uh, keeping his catch rate down in 62.4, which isn't great. But the thing is, he was drawing it, it, it's, it's a low catch rate uh, compared to like the average receiver, perhaps the average productive receiver, especially. Um, but he was doing so much more damage per target than um, in, 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 especially when you adjust for just how bad the passes were and how bad the offensive line uh, for Washington was uh, generating 9.9 yards per target. in that offense is pretty crazy over 93 targets. And then when you look at the tool set, uh, he's super athletic. I mean, he, he had one of the better combine showings among the receivers there. Uh, the only question with him was just kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of thing like, why didn't he get more done at Ohio State? Why didn't he break out sooner at Ohio, St- Ohio State? And the offense was the answer is basically just the, the offense uh, would go to Paris Campbell a little bit more because he had lower difficulty level targets. But if, if it were a different offense or if Paris Campbell just wasn't on the Ohio State offense, in hindsight, I think we can say like, McLaurin would have put up huge numbers there. So it's it's pretty sustainable, I think, uh, given that he's a 4-3-5-40 kind of guy at 210, and given the kind of production that he showed with the worst possible quarterback in offensive line play last year. It's just not that truly frightening that he's, he's obviously still in the Washington offense because he, I just think he's pretty much proven that he it's it's not a it's not like a substantive uh it's not a substantive obstacle for him. He already showed he can, he can overcome it. And there's a chance that the offense just gets a little better and it's just no longer a concern. And now this is just a really good receiver on a decent team. So he showed the ability to work with Haskins, you know, and that's not terribly surprising mm-hmm. uh, given how they work together at Ohio state. So if only because he's really good, uh, McLaurin is really good and he, he can, you know, if, if, if everything else fails for the offense, it seems like Haskins and McLaurin still works. So um, I don't know. He's just an exception to, to the rule of, you know, uh, ideally targeting productive receivers in good offenses, uh, kind of like A.J. Brown, I guess. Uh, McLaurin is an exception. Like this offense doesn't need to be good for him to to show how good he is. Yeah, he, he crushed it last year despite the rest of that offense itself averaging 6.8 yards per pass attempt. So, yeah, that just goes to show that how high above the baseline he was uh, there. And, he you know, all those tools that you were mentioning there from the combine um, and just, you know, the idea of Washington just simply getting even a little bit better this year. I think that that definitely helps sustain McLaurin for the upcoming season. I got him in the fifth round of Rotowire's um, standard scoring uh, draft yesterday. So I was, I was pretty happy about that. And I, and I also got, I'll use this opportunity to piggyback. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get to some more guys here in a second, but uh, I used uh, my next pick to get Darius Slayton, which might have been a little bit early, but I'm a big believer in Slayton. Yeah, I saw. I thought Slayton was pretty convincing last year. And real briefly on McLaurin, he was uh, going about 64th 
in the best ball 10 ADP since uh, May 1st, that's too late in my opinion. I would take him ahead of a number of the receivers that went ahead of him. I'm I'm to the point where I think I have McLaurin about the same as Cortland Sutton and Keenan Allen. So that's a difference of, of about uh, You're around know, almost. Of, yeah, about 16 picks, 18 picks, something like that. And it's just because I, f- I think McLaurin can really only go up like the Haskins could really get better this year. And if he does, then what exactly is the, the limiting factor with McLaurin at that point? So uh, I think DK Metcalf and Stefan Diggs are and, and Tyler Lockett are guys who are kind of categorically limited by their offense unless one of the other people in their offenses get hurt. But with uh, McLaurin, you just need Haskins to be at least as good as last year. And he, he's projecting to meet value so uh yeah i think mclaurin's going too late i I would take him ahead of guys like Devontae parker i would take him ahead of dj chark in light of the chenault selection so yeah i think mclaurin is underrated right now nice and i think 64 is the exact pick that i got him in oh nice yeah i think he's i think he belongs probably uh i don't know like a round and a half higher than he is yeah so uh go ahead go ahead and don't don't be uh don't be shy to, to jump him up your boards a little bit there because McLaurin is the real deal. Um, it, you know, mention Slayton there for for a second. We, we oh, can, sorry, yeah. We can continue on with him. Um, Let's go ahead with Slayton. I mean, he's it, – it's one of those things with the Giants where they kind of have a lot of bodies right now with him, Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard. Uh, luckily for Slayton, Tate and Shepard overlap more than – either if Tate or Shepard encroach on, on the kind of stuff that Slayton does because Slayton's the one in the offense and, and no one else can really imitate this in the offense. Um, but he's the one who can go downfield too. He's, he showed last year, I think, um, it, by showing some underneath stuff too, it wasn't like he was just uh, doing fly routes and posts like he did at Auburn. Um, he looked, I think quite a bit like Mike Wallace actually given, you know, both that's both referring to the speed, like the, the low, uh, four, four, mid four, three type speed. And just like Wallace was a guy coming out of Mississippi who people thought was just, it was a similar line to Slayton. Um, but he went in the third round rather than the fifth Slayton went in the late fifth, by the way. And, and we should probably, uh, try to remember to go back in a second to look at how bad some of these other wide receiver picks, like some of the guys who went ahead of, um, some of the, the best ones will shock you. I think like, uh, just off the top of my head, uh, Isabella went ahead of DK Metcalf like Metcalf was the last pick in the second round I forgot about that um Slayton I think was one of the last picks in the fifth round which is crazy um in hindsight of course but uh if anything if nothing else it was like he was so toolsy coming out of Auburn and he was he was productive there it wasn't like he was unproductive it was just Jared Stidham wasn't very good and they didn't throw the ball that much so uh with Slayton producing the way he did last year and with the tools having never been a question I think we just have to consider him good uh, because it's like the production is good he's an athletic standout he's never actually produced bad in the past so why would we expect it to start now uh so yeah he's he's a guy who maybe he's limited a bit by especially if if having ingram uh comes back healthy and in full force tate shepherd ingram that's a that's a lot of talent to compete with um but none of those guys go downfield as far as slayton so they shouldn't encroach in that sense and then there's also with ingram and and shepherd there's a lot of injury risk between them so i think you know as much as i don't really blame people for seeing slayton as as maybe risky maybe they don't think 
he has enough pedigree to buy in uh, the way we would with some of these other second year guys. I just think that would be wrong because because I think in hindsight it's pretty clear he went too late. Yeah, I mean, and and to bolster your point there, um, Hakeem Butler led off the fourth round. Uh, Gary Jennings uh, went pick one twenty. Riley Ridley uh, went pick one twenty six. Whereas Slayton went in the in one seventy one. So. Yeah, he was a comp pick, so he was basically a sixth round pick. So uh, that was a bit, a bit, a bit of a massive blind spot there by the league. I guess it should have paid a little bit more attention to the fact that you know he's a guy with insane jump scores, a four three nine vertical, ten inch hands, um, just maybe not the biggest guy in the world, but um, all the other tools pretty much projected to you know there there being something there. I guess the only question for me going into last year would have been like you know how does he fit in this Giants offense? Right. We we obviously saw that sort itself out with with some of those injuries and things like that but um definitely like slayton a lot for this year let's get into marquise brown um i think that he pretty much straight up i think he can be a league winner this year i think that he can, nice. he's a guy that um if you if you grab him at his adp and he he got jumped up a little bit before i was expecting him um in that draft yesterday but um I just think that uh, he played last year basically on on one foot. He had the screw in his foot still from from the Liz Frank surgery. Um, that's which is just really really tough. And he still showed like the blazing speed, um, the ability deep down the field. I thought that his his performance against the Titans in the playoffs was really the only bright spot uh, from that entire game. Uh, if he's going at an ADP similar than like Jarvis Landry or Michael Gallup, like it, it's not even close for me. I think Marquise Brown uh, is that true uh, receiver one in the Baltimore offense. And you know, like we were saying about AJ Brown, it's not the most you know, pass happy offense, but there were still 37 touchdowns to go around in the passing game last year with Lamar Jackson back there. So um, I think that Marquise Brown can can definitely push for double digit touchdowns. He might not be like the PPR monster that that some of these other guys uh, is just because of the, the way that that Ravens offense functions. And, you know, they don't really need to throw it late in the game if, if they have kind of established their run and, and uh, put the game away but um, similar to the way I felt about Mark Andrews a year ago at tight end uh, i I get that same sense with, with Marquise Brown this year yeah I really like Marquise Brown I liked him a lot as a prospect uh, especially before the foot news uh, came about and, and that was pretty difficult to read at the time but now that we've had about a year to look at not only his rookie season but kind of just um, just just the way they handled him I guess I think we can say that, you know, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx him or anything, but because he's such a light player, the Liz Frank seriousness might not be as much as it would be in the case of another player. Like if he was a, if he was like a, a Chase Claypool receiver who had a Liz Frank injury, or that AJ would be, Brown. yeah, um, yeah, that would be that would be bad. And it's it's I'm thinking especially of kind of like the the amount of torque they need to generate to run because it's like they got to the heavier you are and, you know, at, at one uh, whatever, 72 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Marquise Brown generous. is. Yeah. It's like he he can kind of fly the way a paper airplane does, whereas these other guys, they need to like really grip onto something and, and exert force to propel themselves. And so it's I assume more uh you know, straining on the foot to have that kind of guy trying to come back from an injury like this rather than a, a gliding kind of, you know, wind like runner like Marquise Brown. But he still probably was not 
any better than something like 85, 90% healthy last year. They still had to limit both his in-game reps and especially his practice reps. So I think if, if his condition is progressing and, you know, the, the surgery, removing the screw, that has to be something decent, I guess. Like, I, I don't want to say it's, it's a definite green light of any kind, but it's, it seems better than bad. Uh, so if he is in better condition and, you know, getting more practice reps, getting more in-game reps, it should kind of, uh, you know, gal- galvanize him in at least a couple fronts, you know, getting more usage and maybe even doing more with the usage that he gets. So I think it's just as simple as if he's healthy, he's going to break out this year because guys just don't produce like he did at Oklahoma and they don't produce the way he did as a, uh, you know, limited rookie, like physically limited rookie unless they're good. And and we have reason to believe he's something like a four, three, five kind of 40 sort of guy. So it's, it's real speed that he's working with and real skill. And he's in an offense where uh, the guy just, the quarterback just threw for 36 touchdowns on like 390 attempts. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, we could start to see that Deshaun Jackson comp start to like really come to fruition with, with Marquise Brown. Yeah, definitely. And the Ravens score more, you know, as long as Lamar Jackson's on the field, they score more than the Eagles ever did, even even though they were really good. It's like this this Lamar Jackson offense is not something we've seen before. And it, you can either bet that it's going to regress or it's like guys like Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews are, are going to be on a tear for the indefinite future. Yeah, I'm, I'm more so inclined to, to buy into that. Uh, for sure. Um, let's get uh, some NFC West guys here. Um, DK Metcalf and, and Debo Samuel. Um, where are you on them heading into this year? So they're kind of, they're almost like opposite in the way you use them. And and not, not that I'm trying to advance the whole DK Metcalf is, is only a one route guy or a two route guy that that whole narrative was always kind of stupid. And there were a lot of things in the general reception of DK Metcalf before his draft that were kind of ridiculous. Uh, but his rookie season made all of it go away and no one's saying any of those things anymore. It's pretty convincing when, uh, you know, he just, he just turned 22 about halfway through December yet. He totaled 900 yards, seven touchdowns on a hundred targets. He is just, you know, optically really intimidating too. It's, it's one of those cases where the tape is probably more impressive to people than the numbers, but the, the numbers are pretty good. The, the, the only question with him that I have, and this is actually the reason I'm not really much of a buyer in redraft right now is just, I don't see the structure of the Seattle offense giving him the usage that, that it, like he, I have no doubt could put up like really top five kind of fantasy production if he was just getting enough targets. But Tyler Lockett is very good and the the Seahawks just will not consider throwing the ball unless they have to. So Tyler Lockett's not going to disappear. I don't, I don't see the way for, for Metcalf to, to get a higher share of the offense. I just, I, I think Lockett's too good for that to really happen beyond more than like little fluctuations from, from, you know, a couple of weeks here and there. And then I'm also kind of worried that the Seattle defense is going to be a lot better this year, both because I think they made a couple good uh, additions to their pass rush and the trade for Quentin Dunbar at corner is going to be a big deal because Trey flowers got, lit up all year last year they needed to kind of 
give him help in ways that deprive the rest of the offense. Uh, sorry, the rest of the defense. Uh, some of its firepower. Dunbar is just a guy who's the prototype corner, like six two, long arms, super athletic, and he was really good in. Uh, Washington in the past couple of years where his job was probably more complicated than it'll be for the Seahawks. So if they have Shaquille Griffin on one side and Quinton Dunbar on the other, and if they're playing really well, the two of them, the Seattle defense is going to get a lot better than it was last year. And so that, that would just in that case, cut off another one of the potential, uh, you know, enhancing factors for, for Metcalf's usage. I just don't see what would give in his favor other than a locket injury, basically. So that could happen. And if it does, he's going to go off. Uh, it's just one of those things like you could, you could give little hypotheticals like that for a lot of other players in that range too, and, and come out to similar conclusions. Uh, so it's, it's just not actionable in my opinion, the, 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 the probable ways that uh, Metcalf could really show what he's capable of. But long term, I mean, like Pete Carroll's not going to be a coach forever. So if if in dynasty leagues, I think he's clearly a hold or even still a buy uh, high as his price tag is, because if, if Pete Carroll leaves and they just go Lincoln Riley or something like that, then DK Metcalf could just go from like a thousand yards to seventeen hundred or something like that. Yeah, but it's, it's uh, crazy that w- when you have Russell Wilson and like you don't you know, lean on the pass game as uh, nearly as much as you should. But yeah, in, in Debo's case, it's like he's going to get a lot of work this year. I think they showed they were intent to make him a foundational piece of the offense last year. Uh, ideally, they would kind of maybe diversify the way he's used a little bit. I, th- I think he he only really had a couple notes last year and defenses are definitely going to scheme for it. So it'll be interesting to see whether they can get him going, especially a little bit more downfield. But the usage is definitely there and the offense perfectly suits his skill set. So uh, he's like 5'11", 214 or whatever, and, and pretty fast for that, especially for that sort of density. And they just keep recreating these scenarios where he's moving top speed and just kind of picking up the ball out of the air because it's these you know short routes or he's literally being kind of handed the ball and they just count it as a pass. So he's always going to be in those positions and the Shanahan scheme is always going to give him yardage to run with afterward. So the, the only real limiting factor with him, I think, is, is kind of uh, – is is George Kittle healthy? If Kittle's not healthy, then you know, then then see, then Dio's usage could really go off. Uh, but it feels like Kittle's kind of to me the the real wide receiver one in that offense, and mm-hmm. and Debo, unless he uh, expands his skill set, or at least if the usage doesn't diversify a bit, then he's. He, I just don't really see how he has a a lane to get past uh, Kittle in the packing order. So. Uh- I think I have an idea of where you might go with this answer, but uh, two receivers going very, very close to each other in in recent best ball drafts, Debo um, around pick 62, Terry McLaurin pick 64. Uh, Where are you going at that range of the draft? I definitely prefer McLaurin there. Yeah, I would also take I would take I know no one agrees with me on this, but I would take uh, Will Fuller over Debo Samuel and I would probably like Debo is in the same category for me as a guy like Jamison Crowder, like a receiver who I'm expecting like maybe and else I'm way higher in Crowder than most people. That's not meant to sound like a slight like I think you could catch 90 passes or something like that. Um, so it's it's in that category of, you know, um, pr- pretty high 
reception count, but I'm not expecting more than like 1,050 receiving yards. Debo gets a lot on the ground, or at least he could, so that's that doesn't mean you know a, a bad thing for him. Um, but I just don't really see the way he becomes much of a red zone guy, except for when you know the the, the play calling kind of like tilts to his part in the script. Uh, I think I think it's all kind of designed a very particular way and i think it'll always work the way it's designed but i just don't really see the negotiability for a breakout and even a guy like marquise brown i think i see a higher ceiling than i do with debo but uh debo it it, it, it's one of those things like he can't really hurt you as a pick it's just you might look back and kind of and noted like two receivers who went after outproduced him if things go a certain way you just get it, get him like at cost and like it ends up being fine but you didn't really profit off of using that that specific draft pick on him uh before we get into the, our next uh group of year two receivers we got a message from our friends over at dynasty owner the best fantasy football leagues are those where every owner constantly pays attention responds to trade offers changes their lineup and are always looking to improve their team there is no off season for these owners that's who you're challenging yourself against in dynasty owner other elite fantasy football players who are committed to competing dynasty owner is the only fantasy football platform with the patent game using actual nfl salaries and contracts combine this with the salary cap elite trading options advanced team rosters and devoted elite owners to compete against and you're faced with the same decisions nfl owners and general managers must make if you're ready to take on the best then don't miss out join the waitlist at dynastyowner.com that's dynastyowner.com all right, let's move on now. Um, let's get into Deontay Johnson. I feel like I've maybe it's just uh, a result of who I follow on Twitter, and I feel like I follow a fair bit of Pittsburgh people. Um, but I feel like I, I hear a ton of buzz about him, and I did kind of underrate the production that, that he put out um, this past year, despite you know the fact that the Pittsburgh offense was abysmal for the most part is the reason why they didn't make the playoffs you know Roethlisberger getting hurt uh, they got embarrassed in that first game and then you know had to try to make something out of Mason Rudolph and Duck Hodges um, but unlike some of these other guys that we've been talking about I'm not sure that the tools are nearly as intriguing when it comes to Deontay Johnson as it comes as it is with some of these other guys um, and you know that none of these guys that we talk about the rest of the way are going to be perfect you know sterling prospect profile guys but when you look at Deontay, De- Deontay Johnson 5'10 183 at the combine runs that 45340 like the other when you uh, go to like a list of specs of other uh, receivers that, that had similar combines to that I mean, it's not an overly impressive list outside of actually Antonio Brown, oddly enough, who had like almost the exact same combine as Deontay Johnson. And obviously, Antonio Brown, one of the best receivers of all time. So let, let's we'll rein in the, the realistic, you know, other comparables there. I think like a guy like Harry Douglas uh, kind of comes to mind as someone who, who has similar tools, maybe a similar uh, ceiling. Uh, other guys in there, Danny Amendola, different role, of course. Uh, Greg Ward, actually, oddly enough. Um, yeah, it's not the most impressive list, honestly. So I, he did he did much better than than you know the sum of the parts there, and and especially with the the added wrinkle of the bad passing game. But I'm not sure what the ceiling really looks like for him, especially if things get get back to recalibrated in Pittsburgh for this year and and it's the Roethlisberger Juju Smith-Schuster show more so yeah this is actually a tough one for me 
I think it's safe to say I was too low on Deontay Johnson as a prospect, but A, I don't think I was that wrong about him as a prospect, and B, I think his his loudest proponents are probably a little bit overzealous. Like there are, there are some people who rank him very, very high to the point that I, I don't know how to reconcile their reasoning unless they're basically predicting that he's going to take over as the wide receiver one in Pittsburgh, in, including displacing Juju Smith-Schuster, of course, let alone James Washington and, and now after the draft, Chase Claypool. So I, it's one of those things like I don't want to say he's he's not a good player because he's been promising for sure so far. And he, he had a, he had really good production at Toledo. It wasn't there was still some concern for me in that like his last season he didn't really do anything to distinguish himself from Cody Thompson and John Vea Johnson and at John most Vea Johnson had like the best production of those group guys I think in that in that last season there yeah and he was also quite a bit more athletic than Deontay Johnson which is weird because uh, John Vea Johnson just went undrafted and I think he's on like the Cowboys practice squad or something like that uh, Cody Thompson was probably just you know a Mac receiver but he didn't really outplay them. The only time he outproduced uh, John Vea Johnson was actually when Cody Thompson got hurt the year before. And then when he was healthy the next year, he just blended in with the other two. So that kind of stuff creeps me out, especially when, like you said, the, the combine workout was not very good. And that kind of leads to like an interesting point about Johnson, which is he's his proponents talk up his, his release ability at the line of scrimmage and his route running. And that's stuff that specifically projects well to get open outside like it's it's good it's it's tougher to get open outside so if you have a really uniquely good route runner a guy who gets clean releases presents a good a good target uh quickly outside that's an uncommon thing and it's valuable to have but he doesn't really have outside receiver athleticism so it it kind of makes me wonder will it have a diminished return or or just some sort of cap on on its utility because it's just different if you're a guy who gets a clean release and and runs a great route if you run a four three five like terry mclaurin that's just he's going to get further than you he's going to get to the point b faster than the other guy it doesn't matter how efficient in his route and his foot movement that the second guy is if he's slower by that much so i think that deontay johnson might both be pretty good and also pretty close to maxed out based on what he did last year. The idea that he's better than Juju Smith-Schuster, I'm just going to say, is ridiculous to me. Yes. And I don't even really want to talk about it. I think it's really silly. So uh, it's the only question to me is is who's the best out of – and who's got the, the easiest route to playing time and usage between Deontay Johnson, James Washington, and Chase Claypool. Before the draft, I would have said I'll put – especially for the price, I would have rather put my money on James Washington because he was going four rounds later than Deontay Johnson, which is – it is ridiculous. I mean I don't – it's there's no mathematical justification for that. I don't I don't know what uh, it's it's just hype that makes a dis- distinction like that in the ADP. But I will say the Claypool selection makes me leery now of James Washington because he was unique among himself, Juju, uh, Deontay Johnson, because he was the one who goes downfield. Like Deontay Johnson last year, even though he played outside quite a bit, he only averaged uh, 9.2 yards for the depth of target. Do, do you which think is, part of that is just because Mason Rudolph and duck can't throw the ball uh not really sorry i mixed up actually with juju it was 9.1 a dot for deontay johnson yeah and uh james washington played in the same offense his average depth of target was 15.2 so which is uh, among the, the the highest in the league so before i thought this is pretty clearly one of those things like once juju gets back him having run the exact same average depth of target as deontay johnson 
he will displace Deontay Johnson and Deontay Johnson non-negotiably will be the second option at most from that point for where he actually functions on the field. And then James Washington would have less competition running far downfield. But the Claypool selection could change that. I think if Claypool's not playing tight end, then you're probably I mean, he could play big slot, I guess, especially if you're getting, you know, quirky personnel matchups that suit you. But generally that kind of catch radius and that kind of speed is more scarce outside. Uh, it's it's a way to make the safeties run back with him. So he could be a problem for James Washington, in which case I don't really want to buy any of them except Juju Smith-Schuster. Um, I don't even really get a chance to get him that much because even though he's like in the fourth round, I think he's a clear buy. I think he's obviously a buy. Uh, I do still have some concerns about Roethlisberger coming back from basically his Tommy John or whatever. And uh, whereas bad as Nick Foles and Trubisky are, Robinson has already a guy like Allen Robinson has already shown the ability uh, to, to produce, but uh, it, a that offense is not as crowded. It, it got less crowded actually, and whereas like the Pittsburgh one, maybe Claypool only plays like 300 snaps, but maybe he plays 600 too. Like I, I just think it's really crowded, and, and if Roethlisberger's not good, in addition to that, then it's it's a, a way for it to go a little bit wrong that I don't think a guy like Robinson can. But if I could trade up from my fifth round pick in these drafts to get Juju too, then I would. Yeah, and uh, to laugh at myself for a second, uh, I said, you know, that Pittsburgh doesn't throw the ball down the field, and you immediately just, well, actually, he had, like, the highest A dot in the league with James Washington. I was like, oh. Well, well that's on not oops. many targets, though. <laughs> right. But, but also, like, one of them was probably, like, a flea flicker or something. Yeah, but it, it was, in a, in that moment, I felt uh, more stupid than usual, but still. Oh, well. Um, but, I, yeah, I just, it's really crowded. I don't. I'm not really buying Claypool being an instant impact guy. No. Um, and I also, I worry, you know, if you're looking at Deontay Johnson as a dynasty um, asset, I think you do need to uh, circle back on that Roethlisberger element where it's like, what if this is his last year? They clearly don't have a contingency plan behind him in place right now. So, I mean, we could be looking at, you know, either he gets hurt again this year or is not the same. And then come 2021, they're kind of back to square one at quarterback. And, and that um, certainly uh, brings down the, the ceiling of the entire offense. Yeah, so I, I'm not as high as some people on Deontay Johnson. I, I think he's good, but I, I just really don't see the, the easy route for the for the upside scenario. So uh, if I was generally speaking in a dynasty league, if I had him, I would probably poke around to see if there was any of his super fans in the league and I would try to sell him in that case. But uh, unless you have one of his super fans on the line, just consider him more of a hold than someone you really need to chase because we, we need some subtractions in that route runner group and we need some assurance at quarterback before we see like real star potential here. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. Um, obviously w- we'd be remiss if we, if we didn't talk about Nicole Hardman on the, on this podcast, uh, I don't know how much, lo- how long we really need to spend on him. Like, I, I guess the, the real question is like how much better, uh, is it going to be for him uh, this season that, than it was a year ago, just given that they're pretty much running back the same nucleus? I don't think it'll be any better because I still think Sammy Watkins is good and they have him for one more year. Uh, Tyreek Hill 
his role is non-negotiable, of course. So I think it's mostly the same role for Hardman, maybe a little bit higher of a target rate, maybe a little bit more in terms of playing time. It, I guess, yeah, Demarcus Robinson, I think that thing is over. Okay. Uh, so so there's there's one less problem. But yeah, Michael Hardman, he just turned 22 in March. That was only his third year playing receiver last year. Uh, he could have had even more insane of numbers if it wasn't for that LaShawn McCoy holding call against the Raiders that didn't actually affect the play. Still bitter. That was, that, that was like a 64-yard touchdown. So yeah, Michael Hartman, he's one of those kinds of assets in, in football where it's in dynasty football where it's you can't really get your hopes up for much this year specifically, but it, it's one of those those uh, cases where it's like if you can just wait three years, the return is is a all but assured and b likely to be of a, a pretty substantial yield because the for instance i think I, I can't tell what people think so i don't want to get this totally wrong but i feel like a lot of people would say deontay johnson and dynasty over Miko hardman and i would say a thousand times out of a thousand fade you know mm-hmm. expletives etc uh so yeah i think Har- hardman's clearly got a very bright future and he's going to continue making huge plays it's just He's still for now is kind of like the Oz Zahir Hakeem uh, behind Isaac Bruce and Tory Holt. And, and, you know, there's luckily uh, Kurt Warner in this analogy is 24 or something rather than 37. So it's not a big deal, uh, but it's going to take a year or two. Patrick Mahomes also uh, had a commercial deal with, uh, I want to say high V. So like also a grocery uh, comparison, you know, because Kurt Warner used to be a grocery guy. Too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that was a, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, that I didn't was a really clean on one. one. Right away. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> oh God. Um, all right. Let's, let's start digging a little bit deeper here. Um, so a guy that uh, you, you had the, or you kind of caught on to him uh, as a buy last year and he, he reasons outside of his own like he he got injured a bunch uh never really got injured in college so like you can't give him the injury bug tag just yet but uh Paris Campbell kind of an invisible rookie season and that could create a bit of a buying opportunity because you look at at the skills that that he possesses like the the combine numbers just like all the Ohio State guys uh last year uh pretty ridiculous um and then you look at the receiving core obviously Indianapolis just went ahead and got Michael Pittman but um he he's a very different receiver um than Campbell Campbell probably profiles as more uh of a slot guy he played 112 of his uh snaps there last year as opposed to 69 out wide um i think that there's room for him to be that starting slot receiver and you know when you have a quarterback like philip rivers that likes to throw it a little bit shorter um i think that also tends to portend well for for campbell this year he he had a a low depth of target last year um but I, i think the sample was too small to really make a ton out of that yeah, I've seen people have some pretty harsh verdicts on Campbell this offseason, and I don't have – I can't track what it is they, they think is going on because Campbell ha- had a pretty obviously inconclusive sort of grade for his rookie season. If you think he did – if you think he did badly as a rookie, uh, your definitions are a little bit goofy, I think, because he, A, barely played. It's just an inconclusive sample when you play 200 snaps. But, B, he drew 24 targets – and the 5.3 yards per target thing is is insignificant or inconclusive, uh, both for the small sample uh, for all of the small sample reasons. Uh, also, the fact that it's 18 of 24 targets that he caught, so it's a high catch rate. Uh, so the 5.3 it, it's it's hinting at rooms uh, room for growth because he he has room to regress in the catch rate category. And in, in the other thing is it's like we know what kind of player he is. We knew he's going to be 
uh, more of an underneath intermediate receiver, at least initially, than a downfield one. And when that kind of player uh, gets used like that, there's going to be stretches where, yeah, they're only averaging like seven yards a catch. But because he's a guy who runs a 4-3-1 and because we already saw him do it a ton of times at Ohio State, we have reason to believe eventually one of these seven-yard catches will instead go for 60 or something like that. And then the average gets you know corrected basically in the process. So the 5.3 yards per target doesn't mean anything. And not just all this – but he had the whole reason that he was that he had a disappointing rookie year was the injuries. Like right. He had a really bad hand fracture that sounded really bad, and then he had a foot break, and that is a concern, admittedly, going forward the broken foot. But it's just it's it's supposed to be fine, basically, and I think we can reason that that that, that they really believe that because Michael Pittman is not the kind of receiver who does Paris Campbell stuff. If they had gotten another kind of slot underneath sort of receiver with that pick or some other pick, I might have gotten a little bit worried about Paris Campbell's foot. But Michael Pittman does not threaten Paris Campbell's usage. Uh, They're competing for usage, but he he doesn't run the same plays as him. They're different positions. So I think Paris Campbell is pretty clearly a buy. If someone's selling him, I think it's a huge error because this isn't just like a decent receiver prospect. He's a really good receiver prospect. Uh, he's only going to be 23 in July. It's not like he's overaged at this point or something. And at six foot 205, the 205 is at, a, according to Mock Draftable, that's 58th percentile. So uh, not far above average, but safely above average. And then he just was lights out in basically every single category. 43140, 40-inch vertical, 135-inch broad jump, uh, the 4.03 second 20-yard shuttle. He's super quick. He's super explosive. He's one of the fastest receivers in in the league. He's one of the best just athletes at any position in the NFL. He's probably like a top five just size-adjusted athlete in the NFL. And he had 24 targets on 200 snaps while dealing with a mangled hand and a broken foot last year. I think he'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, so you you laid it out better better than I could. So, um, you know, it, he at the very least needs to be on people's radars and he's basically free right now in, in drafts. So, I mean, he, he's someone to consider not only in Dynasty, like you said, but um, very, very going very late um, in drafts. He's actually going near uh, who we were just talking about a couple minutes ago, J- James Washington. Uh, T. Higgins is going close nearby him. Uh, he's going too late. Yeah, so that that just tells me that he he's going a, a bit late there, and I think that yeah, there's room. There's like he he fits that that mold of guys that were that are a little bit under the radar after a you know a muted rookie season that that could really reach another level um, that this coming year. So I think that 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 could definitely be in store for him. He definitely has the tools, um, like you mentioned. Um, let's get into a couple guys. Um, one of whom near and dear to my heart, and another one, uh, a guy that, that we both liked a lot as a prospect, but really, really disappointed, and both are facing a lot of added competition uh, this coming season, uh, Miles Boykin and J.J. Ortega-Whiteside. So we'll start uh, with Boykin. So Boykin was a guy who I did not take seriously at all as a prospect before the Combine. Like I, I don't really know anything about him. And the Combine was really good. It was pretty insane athleticism the question at this point is is does he have room for growth basically is this athleticism the kind of athleticism where we can project uh, developmental upside because as much as there is you know the the just the feet factor of someone who can run and jump as as high and far and fast as miles boykin can there's 
this the different sort of you know functional athleticism question and i don't know if he has it he might uh, and at the very least he's not like a natural skill set wise like he, he needs time to develop his skill set the question is whether you know if he develops his skill set further will it be enough to to make up for the deficiencies that he has in the meantime and is that athleticism really practically harnessed and i don't really know because it's one of those things um being like 6'5 225 or whatever and, and having the insane athleticism it might not manifest in football plays reliably or at least not reliably enough if if it's uh being undone by stupid little details like you know his his uh density or his 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 uh center of gravity while running routes is is not low enough and maybe he's getting his, his speed kind of neutralized by the fact that he's this much easier to to be grabbed as a target than the next guy who's a little heavier and a little shorter than him and maybe slower too but just isn't as easy to grab at the line of scrimmage or something like that. I don't know what the explanation is because I don't otherwise know how a guy as huge and fast as him doesn't just do more last year, but especially more at Notre Dame where he was basically just a non-factor until his final year and and he was a little bit overaged for his class too. So a lot of red flags as far as that goes and I'm, I'm kind of losing the hope with him, especially with Devin DuVernay there who I have no concerns about really, especially for for that sort of offense. I think DuVernay's just – an awesome steal of a pick for them. So if only for that reason, I'm, I'm pretty low on Boykin. Uh, Ortega Whiteside, I think it's pretty inconclusive because his production at Stanford implies quite a bit of skill. Uh, his athleticism we knew was probably average at best, but we thought maybe the skill element and maybe the fact that he's, you know, 6'4", 225 or whatever, well-built, maybe that'll help make up for it. I think he's basically pretty close to the Paris Campbell uh, ter- territory in that his disappointing rookie year wasn't entirely his fault or at least like there was, there was a lot of like narrative sort of reasons working against him that maybe weren't fair, but he did drop that one pass that I guess could have been a game winning touchdown back when he first got his playing time. And after that it was a couple, both like Carson Wentz basically didn't trust him after that. And they just kind of stopped throwing to him. Um, But he was still kind of okay on a per target basis. And uh, I really think that it was too small of a sample, and, and especially if he got the yips a bit from dropping that one pass, uh, he, he basically might not have been himself. The problem in his case is there's just so much competition now that I don't really know if it matters whether he's particularly good. Because he's like, I, but I guess my question is aesthetically, like he's so different than the rest of the receivers that that Philadelphia just brought in. Yeah, there is that, and I can also imagine him getting sort of like the third tight end routes in that like maybe they some of the slot routes they have in mind for goddard or and Ertz, maybe Ortega whiteside can play some of those if necessary or maybe they maybe they're just looking to get them on the field that way because it looks like they're otherwise going for a bunch of fly route guys on the outside to keep the safeties off those tight ends and of course jalen rager very fast quez Watkins, john hightower these are fast receivers so the question is whether they even have a position for the Ortega whiteside skill set and if so like what would it look like um deshaun jackson and Alshon Jeffrey should be out of the picture pretty quick. And uh, at that point, though, I think Ortega Whiteside will be the other starting receiver in two wide sets, even though he you know, isn't the ideal speed guy downfield. 
Uh, still, I, I think Rager's a much better prospect. I like Ortega Whiteside. I still think he's probably pre- pretty good. But Rager is an uncommon talent, I think. And those two tight ends aren't going anywhere for like three years. So uh, there just isn't very many targets that are obviously available. Yeah, we yeah we could be looking at you know like being at best like the fi- fifth in like the the pass catching pe- pecking order when it comes to Ortega Whiteside. Circling back t- on Boykin. Another guy who is a is a bigger receiver who had a disappointing rookie season, um, and not the cra- not the craziest college production necessarily. I mean, DJ Chark, honestly, um, just looking at, at some of like the the comparables there in terms of uh, size, uh, Boykin a, a fair bit heavier than than Chark, um, but you know he he had a rookie year with just fourteen catches for one hundred seventy four yards, and you know he never had more than three touchdowns in any of his seasons. Um, at LSU, Boykin at least had eight touchdowns his last year uh, there, and, and is a good bit heavier. Um, so, I mean, do you think that there is some sort of path or like re- reason for hope where you know maybe this can co- you know start to click for him, even if it seems like it comes out of nowhere when it comes to Boykin? Um, maybe for what it's worth, I liked Chark and didn't like Boykin that much, and part of that was just Chark was a lot younger as a prospect, and he was, I think significantly more productive in college just because uh the thing with boykin that's creepy is that it was specifically his fourth year when he turned like 22 and a half i feel like during the season and and that's just kind of not that great to see i think but yeah he is as big and fast as he is so there's there's something to work with there uh i just kind of worried the fact that he took four years to break out at notre dame might mean that he'll take a long time to develop in the nfl too and it's at that point just one of those things where I don't have as many concerns about DuVernay and then there's no more real playing time left if, if that's all reasoned correctly. So I, I feel like there's a little bit more working against Boykin, but the, the single uh, most different thing between him and Chark, I guess, would be the age that they were as as college players. OK. All right. So that that's good to note there. But I wanted to get out one maybe ray, ray of hope. Maybe I'm just trying to talk myself into it. But he might be. I, I don't know. It's like Boykin. It wouldn't be surprising at all if he's just one of those guys who it's he doesn't do much on his first team. And then he has like two or three good years. And then 15 years later, no one remembers him. But he still had, you know, a like two or three thousand yard seasons just not as soon as maybe people hoped or something yeah, so he can he can follow the brashad perriman lineage of uh, <laughs> yes. doing z- zero things in baltimore and then becoming a fantasy asset later on cool um all right so let's get on to a couple more guys um let's hit the um the pair of arizona uh rookies from a year ago so andy isabella and then of course a, a, a red shirt season effectively for, for um for hakeem butler yeah, so I had to think about it a bit. I, I wasn't as sure as I was in the case of Paris Campbell, but I think Isabella's in that same category for me, notably ahead of Ortega Whiteside because there's quite a bit of opportunity that could plausibly be available uh, both soon and for the indefinite future in Arizona. But Isabella, he had a disappointing rookie year, no doubt. He played only 160 snaps. That's not good. He only had 13 targets on those 160 snaps, even though they weren't throwing to him downfield. It was just screen passes, 6.2 yards per target. So that's not good. It, it basically means, or as best I can guess, it means he wasn't getting releases. He wasn't getting into his routes. And that's uh, a good problem when you, when you have that frame, like because that, that's the yeah. concern that comes with you at that point. It is, and it, it could well be the reason if he has a bad career, it could be the reason why. I think 5'9", 188, though, is A, actually totally good density for that size, and B, it's just there's enough other cases of guys that build succeeding despite it 
that I, I feel like it, it it would be something about his his uh, instincts as a route runner or something like that 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 makes him fail if he does. Like I, I feel like he can't really blame his weight or height or anything like that, uh, especially given this is again a really athletic player and the four three one forty is part of it, but he's got a little bit of leaping ability too. Uh, the thing, the, the reason I still have some hope is that uh, he didn't start that fast at Massachusetts either. His first year, he, he didn't really get any playing time. Um, but then his second year, he had a good season, and then he really picked up momentum after that. Um, so despite not doing anything his first year, his other three years were really good production-wise, and he's just, you know, at this point, a really fast guy who produced at an uh, unusually high level in college. And then had a disappointing rookie year, yes, but also inconclusive, I think, because uh, he. what if he makes a second-year leap here similar to how he did at Massachusetts? And uh, I think this is an offense that will be very good soon. Uh, I think Kyler Murray's the real deal. DeAndre Hopkins is obviously going to be the wide receiver one in this offense. That's non-negotiable. Christian Kirk, I think, is non-negotiably ahead of Andy Isabella, too, for the long term. And, of course, Larry Fitzgerald's probably the wide receiver three for this season. But Isabella is the kind of guy I want to buy into because he's really cheap. He's in an offense that's going to throw the ball a lot more than any other offense. And he's fast. And I think that's not just fast, but like uncommonly athletic and also productive as a college prospect. So he's not going to have a route to high volume, but he could be the kind of guy who's uh, taking, you know, 55 receptions for 900 yards pretty soon. Okay. All right. So that, that's a good way of, of summing it up for him. Um, I know that like the, the Georgia media still talks about the time that Isabella torched them in the, in his last season at, at UMass. He, you know, it was a, pretty much a blowout but Isabella still like got the best of you know a, a defense that had DeAndre Baker and all that so I mean uh yeah he can beat Baker he can <laughs> play against the Giants <laughs> see um didn't they was the Cardinals Giants game the one last year where they said that David Johnson was going to play then he didn't I think so yeah <sighs> angry um but yeah, I, th- I think that there there is um, a, a reason to buy in on, on Isabella. There, there's some pretty intriguing stuff in his profile. So um, cheap too. Yeah, so cheap. And like you said, also, uh, you know, he weighs a considerable amount more than than Marquise Brown. So I mean, that you know, maybe he's or not- Deontay Johnson. Mm-hmm. See, so um, yeah, may- maybe this will end up panning out for him. And you know, he was making a pretty massive uh, leap in competition, of course. Um, and then, did you have any uh, Hakeem Butler? thoughts not really and Keyshawn Johnson I, I just think he probably can't play his production last year uh, it was Deshaun Hamilton stuff really bleak I, I don't know why they would keep him on the team after last year but uh Keen Butler's tougher he did have that broken wrist or whatever to be fair I, apparently he wasn't doing well before that um but Andy Isabella wasn't doing well either it, it's inconclusive especially if, if you're talking just training camp chatter so Butler has a shot. I think he's actually worth buying in Dynasty because no one wants him anymore. Uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> like uh, People had him as the 1.01 rookie pick before his draft. Uh, some people, not us. Nope. Um, but who can uh, who can remember whether, you know, it was who, who knows who had who ranked where. These things happen, you know. Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's kind of funny. But uh, everybody who probably was banging the drum so obnoxiously and 
saying everyone was stupid for thinking that DK Metcalf was better than Hakeem Butler. Uh, I don't hear them vouching for him anymore. It's like they kind of want the whole thing to go away. They don't really want to talk about it for some reason. But uh, anyway, Butler is still a huge guy who is fast. It's, I think, him and Isabella who are going to realistically project for the downfield targets in that offense. But a lot of those targets, or sorry, a lot of those routes are going to be decoy routes to kind of just make Kirk and and Hopkins get open. Um, And I think if it's reduced to that, then having the actual burning speed to truly lose the defense is, is especially valuable. And Isabella, I thought was just way better in college than Butler anyway. So I don't really see how Butler has an impact there unless Isabella fails, in which case he could, but I don't quite expect it to go that way, obviously. Okay. Um, And then, uh, so we've, we've got through a, pretty large number here any other of these second year guys that that you wanted to touch on uh, before we sign off um as a kind of rapid fire i think hunter renfro is pretty close to maxed out in his role but he'll he'll be useful in in the slot for uh the raiders i think that enkeel harry will be both disappointing to people but also productive i think the disappointment will have more to do with just how good the other receivers in the draft that they that they passed on to take him i think harry will still be good just not as 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 good and not as soon as people had hoped uh preston williams had some he drew a lot of targets last year and he's definitely a really productive player at colorado state he was like a five-star guy at tennessee before that so he's got pedigree um but uh he wasn't actually that effective last year so i would i would I would prefer guys like Isabella Campbell safely over a guy um, like Preston Williams. If we're talking undrafted guys last year, Steven Sims is definitely my favorite. He he drew so many targets, uh, dropped a bunch of them, but the ones that he didn't drop, he made a lot of sick moves after the catch with. He returned a kickoff for a touchdown. He had like a 70-yard carry for a touchdown against the Patriots. So I think Sims is good. Uh, he's falling in drafts though since the Antonio Gandy Golden selection, which doesn't make any sense to me. I don't. I don't think he's going to play in the slot where Sims does. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, uh, Jalen Hurd might get moved to tight end, which I think would actually help because George Kittle yeah. has a bit of an injury history, and obviously, like 500 yards at tight end is could be useful. Whereas at receiver, we don't have any use for that. No, and and Hurd had such like a invisible. Well, he he got hurt right in the in the preseason. There was some there was some praise for him in training camp, but. But uh, he's just not very fast, and he's he's like this lanky kind of guy. Um, ideally, he would be like six five, two forty, and probably like playing uh, tight end or something. But we'll see. I, I think if he does move to tight end, he really is worth owning in dynasty leagues, maybe even as a buy uh, sort of target because he no one really has faith in him at this point for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but uh, if Kittle gets hurt. I mean, Ross Dwelly sucks and they're just, they're going to need somebody else to do those plays. Like Ross Dwelly can't do it. Yeah, exa- exactly. So, I mean, that, you know, Hurd would be light for the, uh, for the tight end position. So the, the blocking stuff, maybe they still, they would stick that on Dwelly, but, um, you know, as far as routes from the tight end spots go, I mean, Hurd could, could certainly do that. And he worked re- really well in, in the short uh, area situations at Baylor, his, his one year there, uh, making that transition from running back at uh, formerly um, at Tennessee. So, yeah, in- interesting player. If nothing else, you know, if the guy that, that bought in last year is already over him, yeah, maybe kick the tires. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, otherwise, I guess the only real one worth mentioning is uh, Scott Miller was really productive at Bowling Green and he's really fast. Uh, he's also only about 170 pounds. So uh, him versus Tyler Johnson will be interesting because Johnson isn't anywhere near as fast and, and Miller is good uh, skill set wise. But there's like a 32 pound difference between the two. And if they want to run the ball, then I don't know. Johnson might be their preferred blocking option there. So uh, Miller could do nothing, and because Tyler Johnson could just be good. Uh, but if if he is on the field and if he is getting targets, he's someone to keep in mind because he's he's always done well with the targets that he's drawn. I see. All right, that's going to wrap things up for this week's RotoWire NFL podcast, brought to you by Dynasty Owner for Mario Puig. I'm John McKechnie. Thanks for listening. <laughs>